If you're trying to make any kind of meaningful, effective change in your life, well, you have come to the right place because that is what my expert guests and I are here to help you do. Welcome to We're Talking Shift. This is the podcast where all we do is talk shift because when we're stuck and need to rise to a challenge, make a health shift, a relationship or an emotional shift, well, the first thing we have to shift, my friends, is our thinking. That is the antidote to feeling stuck. I'm Lori Bischoff, and I'm so glad you're here. Now, let's get busy. Good day, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Lori Bischoff, and we are about to start talking some shift. I have been itching to get into the subject of manners for a while now. Um, I feel like, uh, especially this year, um, manners and civility and even some chivalry uh, seem to be lacking. Um, it's, it's really been up for me. So after much searching, and let me tell you, I did a lot of searching to find the perfect person for this subject. I, I found a lot of people that specialize in, you know, which fork to use at a formal dinner, but I, I couldn't find somebody that covered a broader area when it came to this subject. So, uh, so I did. After months of searching, I found the perfect person to get into this with. So let me tell you a little bit about America's trusted etiquette expert, Thomas Farley, a.k.a. Mr. Manners. He is a speaker, a workshop leader, a media commentator, writer, and podcaster who is inspiring audiences of all types to master essential communication strategies for success in the workplace as well as in life. So this is not going to be just about workplace people. This is about you and your life and your family and your community. So stay with us here. Mr. Manners clients have included the United States Department of Commerce, the Estee Lauder companies, JP Morgan Chase, the Walt Disney Corporation, Bank of America, the American Automobile Association, also known as AAA, the U.S. Army, Viacom, Toyota, and UPS, just to name a few. He is a regular and popular guest on the NBC Today show. His insights appear regularly in other media outlets as well, including Dr. Oz, the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, Wired and Money Magazines, USA Today, CNN, VH1, ABC, and he is on radio stations across the country. Who? Mr. Manners is a very, very busy guy teaching people everywhere how to mind their manners personally and professionally. So I'm very grateful to have him with us today. Welcome, Thomas. Lori, thank you so much for that gracious introduction. And my gosh, I hope you didn't lose your speaking voice after having to do such a long intro of my, with my bio there. But I, I do I'm appreciate it. And, and I, uh, I particularly appreciate the nuance that, that you see in the work that I do. And, and I do what, as well what's known as the FORK course, uh, the Dining Etiquette Program for those who are interested. But for me, what is really exciting about etiquette and manners is the ability to think about etiquette in a completely different way from the no elbows on the table kind of strictures that we often associate with etiquette. Yeah. So yeah. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. I am too. And so, you know, before I start getting into the particulars of, of manners in general, I, I have to ask you, um, how does one end up being known as, you know, the leading expert on etiquette and Mr. Manners. I mean, I can't imagine as, as, as a kid sitting in school, you were sitting around dreaming of how you were going to teach people better manners, right? You know, like most kids are thinking I'm going to, you know, launch a rocket into space or I'm going to be a doctor or a vet. How did you get from there to what you're doing now? Yes, I think, I think, you know, it's funny, my, my dreams were not really of becoming an astronaut, but of becoming a broadcaster at that time. So in a lot of ways, although I took a detour away from the world of television, it's really been enthralling and such a privilege to have landed with so many media outlets where I get to commentate on a regular basis. But my, uh, my early upbringing really was filled with wonderful role models, including my parents, school teachers, I had 
an aunt who is a, a school teacher in Brooklyn who, boy, if you did not send her a thank you note, a handwritten thank you note within a week of her giving you a birthday present or a holiday gift, you were in deep trouble and you didn't get a present the following year. So oh. from, an, yes, from an early age, uh, and in fact, funny, funny little mini story about my Aunt Muriel. So there was one year I, I just knew that I, I needed to have proof. So I would not only handwrite my thank you notes, but I would very often Xerox them just in case to have a backstop if anything got lost in the mail. There's one year in particular where she said, you know, Tommy, I never got a thank you note from you. And uh, I said, Aunt Muriel, that's that, that there's something wrong here. I wrote you a note. And uh, sure enough, I was able to produce my, my Xerox evidence. <laughs> you had evidence. <laughs> yeah. That's and awesome. The gift started flowing once again. So, uh, so that was the, really the foundation, though, for me. And okay. I attended Catholic schools when I was younger, and grammar school and high school. So I was very accustomed to wearing a necktie every day to school. So this kind of concept of uh, maybe perhaps a more formal etiquette, as we think of etiquette, were really intrinsic to my childhood and my formative years. It wasn't really, though, until I landed at Town & Country Magazine. So rather than broadcasting, I wound up working in magazine publishing. And I, one of my first jobs was as editor, um, a senior editor at Town & Country Magazine. And one of the columns that I handled there, which I was so privileged to work on, was a column called Social Graces. And it was the magazine's monthly look at the way people interact with one another. And so I know there's probably a perception perhaps among many of your listeners and viewers of Town & Country being a magazine for the polo pony set. And mm -hmm. uh, you know, if you're not in St. Bart's, you're probably not on the Town & Country reading list, uh, I think is the perception out there. But the reality is the magazine, as aspirational as it was, in this particular column really liked to address situations that were everyday scenarios that you could relate to no matter what country you lived in, what your economic background might be. Mm -hmm. So things such as elevator etiquette or the thing that you wish you had said that you think of 10 minutes after you've left an occasion. Mm -hmm. So those would be topics. So anything but the elbows on the table, uh, yeah. you know, what do I do if I'm having Queen Elizabeth over for a state dinner at my home, who sits where, those sorts of things, frankly, there are guidebooks that exist for that sort of information, that once in a lifetime question you may have. <laughs> but what really enthralls me and excites me is the ability to address the things that happen to us on a daily, regular basis, and, and frankly, into your lead-in, that really help grease the wheels of interaction in a culture that so often does feel really uh, caustic and inconsiderate with one another. So that's where it began at Town & Country. And while I was editing that column, we decided the column was so popular. It was really, it was the one column that just consistently got letters from our mm. readers. Mm. And uh, the column was popular enough. We decided to create an anthology of the column. And when the column came, when the book came out, then media started calling. And, and it was right around then that the Mr. Mo the Mr. Manners moniker uh, arose and it stuck. So I'm, I'm, ha I'm, I feel very honored to wear that crown. It's, it's, uh, it's a weighty responsibility, but mm -hmm. uh, I, I take it with, with great seriousness and pride and fun. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm glad. Um, and I think fun is definitely important. And um, thank God there that you're doing this because honestly, I mean, with all of the advances that um, humanity has made, I think that like being, being um, civil, even in the most challenging of situations, seems to be something that we still have a lot of work to do. So I'm glad you are out um, doing the, the work that you're doing and um, talking to people and teaching. I think it's really, really important. It's just, you know, interpersonal relationships and communication is just everything come, everything stems from that. Yes. And th this is just like a fundamental thing that is so important, I think, for people and for, you know, children to be learning. Um, so that brings me to my first question. Do you think that just demonstrating, forget about the, you know, the really um, particulars of, of etiquette, but just basic good manners. Do you think that the demonstration of good manners has like diminished and become a little eroded in our society over the past few decades? What, what's your observation? I feel like it has. This is, this is such a, I love answering this question as, and you can imagine, I get it a lot. Mm -hmm. And certainly the common perception out there is that yes, 
manners have been on the decline. Uh, each generation typically feels that way about the subsequent generation. And you can actually read texts from the Puritan age where some of the Puritan fathers and mothers are talking about their children in a way that sounds not too dissimilar from a complaint you might hear from a parent in 2020. So the reality is as much as we may think with rose colored glasses that things were just so wonderful and people were really kind and nice and, and just, you know, I think, I think movies and TV from the, uh, the mid, mid 20th century often give us that impression. Uh, but the reality is that bad manners, you know, someone who has the, you know, the mouth of a sailor, uh, you know, there were, there were sailors who had the mouth of a sailor 500 years ago and before right. that. Right. Uh, we think about even table manners. I mean, the idea that society even used things like a fork. A fork is a relatively modern invention. It was the knife, it was the spoon. And a napkin, having a napkin for yourself, if we were living in the middle or late middle ages, your napkin would be a communal, basically like a communal blanket that hung on a wall. And when you felt like you needed to, you know, wipe your gruel off your mouth, you just <laughs> walked over to the napkin, the, the hanging blanket, and you wiped it off along with everybody else who was using that same fabric. So, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> so, in, in a lot of ways, we're, of course, thank goodness, we're leaps and bounds ahead of that era when it comes to hygiene, when it comes to personal hygiene, you know, yeah. things like. Uh, you know, taking a bath, taking a shower, which which were were seen as highly uh, rare things for a person to do, and you just yeah. you know you didn't you didn't do those things because you you had all sorts of superstitions attached to them. So, I think manners have improved definitely in those areas. What we have seen for sure, Lori, is over the last forty to fifty years, I've, we've seen a great amount of casual entering our daily lives, so particularly in the way we dress. And mm -hmm. again, here's where vintage does not do us wrong. If you look at a vintage photo from Times Square in 1950 or 1960, uh, you know, the women are wearing gloves and the men are wearing hats and everyone's in right. a suit. You don't, you don't see people wearing, uh, you know, saggy basketball uh, shorts and uh, open lace yeah. sneakers and sweatpants and so pajamas. there was- <laughs> Yes, pajamas, right, exactly. <laughs> So that, yeah. that has changed for sure. We've gotten more, a lot more casual. And although there are kind of occasional um, ebbs and flows in the, the years since, I mm -hmm. do not think, sadly, that that genie is going back in the bottle. And I think this whole, and I'm sure we'll talk about this, but this whole pandemic that we've been going through, mm -hmm. which has ushered in this concept of don't worry about wearing pants, don't worry about wearing shoes, as long as you look good from basically the, you know, the, the torso up, you're fine. Um, or just being on a call and turning off your camera because you're not camera ready. So I think yeah. there's a casualness and I think, and this may be my Catholic school upbringing speaking, but there's something about dressing a little bit more either stylishly or formally that I think helps inform and dictate the way we act. The mm -hmm. less formal you're dressed, the less likely you are to feel um, that you're going to act in a proper way. And that's, that can be a good thing mm -hmm. because people mm -hmm. can relax and be themselves. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think you're right about that because one kind of your mindset sort of influences what you feel like putting on. Mm -hmm. But then conversely, what you've got on seems to affect your mindset too. So I can see how the two are closely related. Good. They are. It's interesting they are for sure. observation. Yeah. And I imagine that, um, I mean, culturally and different, I guess, um, I guess culturally, you're going to see differences too. I mean, I see such a huge difference. I've been to Japan several times and wow, I mean, talk about a place being extremely manners centric. So, you know, things that you wouldn't even think about um, here in America they are over the top, very, very polite and manners. And there's a, you know, a protocol for things and it's, and that's just culturally how they do things. And then here it's, it's very, very casual and there's much less of that. Um, just the, you know, the particulars of it involved. So I, I guess a lot of it depends on where you're from and your community, your, your country, your culture as well. It's true, and I think we know this, of course, there are even regional differences. So mm -hmm. although, and I live in Manhattan, uh, New Yorkers, I was just having this conversation with someone yesterday who's a non-New Yorker who just said, oh gosh, those New Yorkers, they're just so rude. 
And I know that's the common perception out there. And I'm continually talking about the kindness of New Yorkers. Uh, we you know, certainly yeah. saw it after September 11th. We see anytime there's a disaster, New Yorkers really come together. We're constantly in a rush. We're constantly overscheduled. So we don't have tons of time. If you need directions, we'll give them to you, but we won't chit chat for 25 minutes after. We're already, yeah. we're already on our way to our next meeting. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. So it's not personal. That's right. Don't take it personal. But you know, those of you who are who are visiting New York or scared to visit New York because you right. think it's that we're yeah. rude. So regionally, even within the United States, we see those sorts of etiquette differences. You know, that's true because uh, I was born and raised in the Twin Cities in Minnesota, and um, we moved to Atlanta uh, when my my husband and I, when our children were young, and we lived there for about eight years. And wow, I was so surprised at the difference in just manners manners and chivalry there that I did not know some of these things existed growing up in Minnesota. I didn't, I didn't see some of the behavior um, there that I saw in at Atlanta. And, uh, and not that it was terrible by any stretch. There was just, a, you know, a kind of like above and beyond measures that I hadn't been exposed to, to before that were very common in the South. And so I thought that was really interesting. And, and then began the um, training of my husband. <laughs> <laughs> How's he doing? Is he coming along? Yeah, yeah. He's actually really, really good um, now. We're still working on the pulling out the chair, like if we go to a restaurant or, you know, go to sit and have a cocktail at a bar or something. Yeah, I'm still working on the um, get pull my chair out part before you get yourself all situated. But he's, he's a fast learner. And I think, uh, you know, maybe one or two more times he's going to get it. <laughs> I think he's just so excited to get there and, and get a beer or a cocktail. <laughs> he's just like, I'm like, wait, what about me? I'm still trying to get my coat off and get my purse situated. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, he's, he does, he does pretty well. Uh, but it was definitely an eye opener when we moved. I'm like, I've been missing out on some stuff here. <laughs> so well, you, you, you raise a, another aspect of this, Lori, which when mm -hmm. we talk about evolving etiquette and is, you know, are things better? Are they worse? Are they about the same than they were 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 years ago? And I think the, the rise of feminism mm -hmm. certainly ushered in a difference in the way that men interact with women. And I do, yeah. I feel for particularly a, a certain generation of men, maybe older, who simply just don't know what the right thing yeah. is to do. They don't want to offend by not pulling out that chair, but they don't want to offend by pulling out the chair. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's really a case of knowing your audience. And, and certainly in the case of a spouse, you should know what the spouse is, is hoping that you will do for them. Uh, but, you know, someone else might feel really offended by that and say, you know, I don't need you to pull out my chair. I can do it myself. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of mixed messages out there. And I think mm -hmm. that's contributed to some of the falling away of those gentlemanly niceties that yeah. um, that we would have that would have been very much a part of our culture only a couple yeah. decades ago. Yeah, I, I actually kind of feel bad for the guys because it it is very confusing and you don't know, um, you know, if it, if you're going to offend somebody, if you just do something as thoughtful as simply, you know, pull out a chair or, you know, rush ahead to open a door and hold the door. Um, and that's got to be, that's got to be tough. I mean, because when we're talking about chivalry, chivalry, we're, you know, we're, we're generally assuming we're talking about the behavior of, of men um, and um, toward, toward women for the most part, or, you know, anyone that is, um, that they're just trying to uh, do like take their needs into consideration. Uh, and so I, I, yeah, it's, I would feel, I just, I feel bad for guys because I, I think that, you know, it's a shame that they would have to actually um, stop and, and ask, you know, would you be offended if I pulled open, you know, the, open the door for you or, or pulled out a chair for you? Um, but on the other hand, I, you know, I guess I, I guess I can see why some women would, maybe it's a misinterpretation, you know, because maybe it's, uh, maybe, maybe it's not so much about somebody thinking that you're not capable of opening a door or pulling out your chair. It's not about, are you strong enough to do that? You know, are you just so weak and, and frail that I have to do this for you? It's really not about that. It's really just about a thoughtful gesture. I, I feel, yes. Am I, am I off base on that? 
no, no, you're right. I, I mean, there may be some men who use it as a, you know, a power role or a power dynamic kind of a situation, but it's fascinating. And we could probably even do a whole show on just this topic, but yeah. In my, so I do, as you mentioned at the outset, I do workshops for corporations in addition to my media work that we've discussed and the keynote speeches that I do around the country. And something that I consistently hear from my executive groups is that uh, many women feel that when a man in the workplace, so this is not a date, this is not a romantic situation, goes to shake their hands, the man will really give a handshake that's very limp and weak. Yeah, you, yeah. you've obviously experienced it. I hate right? that. As if like, okay, I'm about to shake hands with a dainty, you know, female here. Right. So I can't possibly even show that I'm alive and it's disrespectful to exert any pressure in the hand. Now, nobody's shaking hands at all right now, but when we go back and we will, yeah. I'm confident of that. Yes. I'm hoping that this was a, an opportunity for a reset for all of us because I, I think although the men think they're doing the right thing, mm-hmm. the, a woman who then sees that same male then shaking hands with another male, you know, hey, how's it going, John, kind of thing. Right. It's like, what is, is this a bro culture going on? Am I excluded? Am, am I not capable of, no, that doesn't mean that you should be doing the death grip to anyone. Right. But, um, so I'm all constantly encouraging again, and it's usually men of a certain generation, please, mm-hmm. gentlemen in the workplace, you may think this is the right thing to do, but in your, in your honest attempt to be considerate to the women that you're working with, Remember, they are your equals. They are your equals, and you should not be backing off your handshake so much that you're giving them a dainty handshake. It's actually condescending and insulting without that being your intention. Yeah, I agree. And honestly, to me, it's kind of a disappointment because I really like shaking hands. Mm -hmm. And I remember when I was like 21, I was working, I was managing um, the informal dining room at a, a country club. And, um, and, uh, one of the, one of the clients or guests there, um, members was a psychologist and, um, we were talking one evening and he introduced himself and went to shake my hand. Now I'm like 21. I've never really had any instruction in handshaking. And so I just kind of did the, I don't know, I just put my hand out there. I don't know what I was doing. And he gave me a lesson in handshaking and he said, oh no, dear. This is not how you ever shake hands. This is how you shake hands. And he taught me how to do a handshake. I never forgot it. And it was, it seems, you know, like maybe a small thing, but it is not. It's a, it, it makes a statement. So I never forgot that. And I have a fantastic handshake, if I do say so myself. And every time I shake hands with a new person, a, a man usually, they comment on it. Yes. And so, and if I get a, if I get one of those kind of limp things, I, depending on who it is, I will sometimes say, uh, you know, can we try that again? <laughs> so, yes. You know, it's kind of a, uh, I guess an indirect way of sort of telling them, um, you know, try a new approach. <laughs> one of the, the fun things I do in my workshops is I actually have a, a digital measuring device for measuring grip strength. Ah. And I pass it around a, a circle and have people, I tell them, squeeze this gripper with the same amount of strength that you would typically use for a handshake. And what will often happen is, you know, the men in the room typically will squeeze it with all their might just because they're competing with one another to who can see yeah. get the highest number. Of course. Surprise, but, surprise. Yes. <laughs> but those who are approaching the exercise seriously and with an open mind it's fascinating to see the differing perceptions of what amount of pressure and strength is appropriate and what's not. And this, we talked about the cultural differences. This guy is greatly, I do a lot of work with, uh, with overseas companies. And so companies from Germany or East Asia and handshake grip strength varies radically. So what we know as a good American handshake or good North American handshake would be seeing either aggressive, for example, in Japan, if in fact you were shaking hands with someone from Japan. Right. Um, although they typically bow with one another. Right, they're bowing. Yes. Or, but conversely, for a German or for someone who's from Russia, their handshakes are extremely strong. And you, when you mm-hmm. first shake hands with someone from one of those countries, very typically you're thinking, 
oh my goodness, what did I do wrong? I mean, it's just so unanticipated when you're not expecting yeah. it. Yeah. So I, I advise them if they're doing business with Americans that they need to dial it back. I advise the Americans anticipate a really strong H dial, right. dial it up. Right. So anyway, all the little nuances that we encounter and that's what makes etiquette so much fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. It's very interesting. So, okay. What, what do you think, last question around chivalry in particular, what do you think should be just like a safe bet? What's, what do you think is safe um, without in danger, being in danger of, of what can a guy do that would be, you know, just a polite thing without having to worry about that? Sure. Yeah. So what I advise is for someone who wants to cultivate a genuine reputation as someone who is a gentleman, you hold the door for everyone, men, women, cats, dogs, squirrels, (laughs) you know, and that way someone may still feel, you know, no, you go ahead. I can hold my own door. But if you're doing that universally for every living creature, you can't possibly be accused of favoritism. Uh, or that you're being condescending to a certain gender simply yeah. because you think they're weaker. Uh, I think if you do it consistently and you and you do it not in a showy way, but in, a, in an authentic way, then I think you're really on a great footing. And gosh, mm-hmm. who doesn't love that person who always says, oh no, after you, oh, please go ahead. Oh no, you take the last... Uh, the last pig in a blanket, right? As opposed <laughs> right. to the, you know, the wolf who's just scarfing it down and pushing to get in the front of the line. And nobody wants to be yeah. around that person. So I think right. that's really my best advice. That's good advice. That's good. You really can't go wrong when you are just being very polite and trying to just do nice things for everyone. Yes, good, exactly. Good call. All right. Let's talk about manners between couples. Um, if you're in relationship with someone, you're married, you're living in the same, under the same roof. Um, I know that my own observation, shockingly, I've seen that basic manners just between couples, um, they, they seem to mysteriously dissipate over time, um, which I think is a terrible habit to allow, you know, in a pattern to allow to take hold. Um, so I want your take on that. And then when do you think it's okay to sort of relax your, your manners or your decorum? Um, and then what should you never compromise on when it comes mm-hmm. to that? Yeah, all great questions. Well, you know, it's funny. I used to, at Town & Country, I worked with a woman who was our health and beauty editor. And she was just a brilliant writer and such a good, good friend. Janet Carlson was her name. And she, uh, later in life, re-embraced her love of competitive dancing. And so she wrote this book all about how dancing saved her life as she was going through a difficult time in her marriage. And one of the stories that she recounts in this book is how she would commute from suburban uh, Westchester down into New York City every day with her husband, and they would sit side by side in the train. And her husband, especially in the winter, would get the sniffles. And he would just kind of sit there on the train and he'd, you know, be sniffing away and sniffing away. And in the early years of their courtship and of their marriage, she would kind of just gingerly reach into her purse and she'd lovingly hand him a tissue to dab his nose because he never had tissues with him. And that at a certain point in the marriage, suddenly this sniffling became so annoying and it was the loving gesture of care and compassion was gone. And mm-hmm. he knew that that was one of the flashpoints where she knew that the marriage probably was not uh, long for this world. And in fact, they did split up. And she writes about all of this in her book. So I think certainly when we're dating, there is uh, a desire to put our, the best possible version of ourselves forward, which is probably not necessarily who we are on a day-to-day basis with our family yeah. or friends. Right. So what people are seeing of us in in that those early stages is is somewhat skewed and then i think conversely uh whatever person that we're courting or dating is perhaps hopefully so smitten that they're either not seeing a lot of our flaws that are there or they're overlooking them and we see them as adorable foibles rather than annoying habits yeah Yeah. and i think and i'm not married but as you know as time goes by i do think that um unless you're a really super patient, understanding, kind person who never is stressed out or anxious, there are going to be moments where what was sweet and cute at first just isn't anymore. And I think people, 
you know, people get a little bit too ingrained in their, in their lazier ways of existing and kids now are in the picture and, Mm -hmm. you know, you don't get to put on makeup in the morning like you would use, you know, before your husband wakes up in bed and you wake up all refreshed with your makeup on looking like you, you know, just came out of the salon. Have have you been watching the marvelous Mrs. Maisel? Uh-huh. <laughs> yes. Yes. She, she wakes up before he does, puts on all of her yes. makeup and then crawls back into bed. Exactly. But women used to do that. It's remarkable. But gosh, yeah. fair play to anybody who does that. I, I give them a lot of credit. But uh, I, I, I wonder sometimes whether it's even appreciated by the husbands who probably don't even notice half the time. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's a lot of effort and lost sleep. But, yeah. Um, but yeah, and I think though, um, I feel like I have... I think that there are certain things that you should never compromise on. I've been married for over 36 years. And, and thank you. And we have a fantastic relationship, a, a wonderful marriage. And, uh, and, but yeah, you know, you notice that, I mean, we've been together for a long time, almost 40 years. So, you know, you, you kind of, I, I, I'm very observant about things like that. And, um, and I observe uh, other people's relationships and how they are within their, you know, with their significant other or their spouse. And um, one of the things that I notice is the, the people that, that don't, um, that don't stay together or that do stay together, but they're miserable. Um, there is almost, there's very little sense of, of kindness, thoughtfulness, and, and just general manners um, anymore, yeah. uh, which is, which is sad because I feel like um, you, it's a demonstration that you no longer place that person in high regard, high, high enough regard to, you know, comport yourself with some semblance of thoughtfulness and kindness and civility. Um, and I, I think that you should never, like never, ever, ever under any circumstances, you never swear at your partner. Like, and I don't mean swearing in general, like sailor mouth you were talking about. I mean, calling them a name that way. You don't call your partner names. I don't care how horrible they've been or what they've done. I just think that's a line you should never cross. Um, what do you think? I would agree with you on that. And I think even just taking it one step further, embarrassing your spouse or significant other in front of others. So where you're actually yeah. criticizing something that rather than waiting until you get home or waiting until, waiting until the moment is over, I think that is one of the yeah. most horrifying things anyone can do. You know, if you have that sort of relationship where there's just constant good-natured ribbing that you, you can do in front of your friends and nobody yeah. takes any offense, but where you're yeah. deliberately doing it to embarrass uh, yeah. or, or belittle, mm-hmm. I think that's, it's an appalling way to behave and it shows such little respect. So, yeah. and, and I fully agree, you should not be calling your, your spouse a name. If something's really irking you that much, clearly it's time for a conversation. Yeah, exactly. And that's a really good point because I totally agree with that too. You never, you never try to elevate yourself or get a laugh at the expense of your partner. And there is a fine line between uh, good-natured teasing mm-hmm. and being able to have some fun uh, and actually humiliating somebody. And um, yeah, th- those, those two are like my top two. You never do that. It's such a breach of trust and a betrayal. Um, I just think, yeah, doing those things, you're definitely going to, it's going to leave a mark, let's just say. Yeah. And I think that kind of mean spiritedness is, you know, it's, it's, I, I believe when we, you know, talked again at the outset about our manners on the decline. And I do think that there's a certain mean spiritedness that's entered our, our way of being, it's entered our mm-hmm. lexicon. And I think a big part of that has been social media and technology and you know it's it's so much easier to be a mean awful complaining yeah. person or critical person when you can do it offline when you can do it in an email when you can do it in a tweet when you can do it in a facebook post as opposed to having to literally stand in someone's presence and look them in the eye and say those same vile awful things now there are people who can do that too but uh, I think asynchronous communications, as, as, a, as it is called, where we're not live, where the person can respond to us right there, right then and there, I think it makes it far easier for people to simply hide behind mm-hmm. the wall of a screen, behind the wall of a tweet. And that's something that's a relatively modern development. You know, prior to 
email and social media. We had telephones, mm -hmm. yes. Um, we had the telegraph maybe would be the closest thing, but uh, you know, unless you were really gonna sit down with your quill pen and, and write a long, you know, beautifully written mean letter, uh, you probably didn't have any means to be able to do this in such a uh, right. divisive and, and critical way. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Uh, a lot, a lot of great things with with social media, um, but also the flip side um, when you're in the the safety and comfort of you know of your of your own home or or your, or you've got the anonymity working on your side, um, you you don't really need any um, you don't really need any courage. Then you can just be an ass. <laughs> Because there's, because there's, you know, nobody in your face calling you out and, you know, and have, that you have to have an actual adult conversation with. It's, That's right. Exactly. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So what, let's talk a little bit about what's going on right now. So everybody's cooped up at home. We've got kids. Yeah. Everyone's spending a lot more time together than they probably have in, in, you know, a long time. Um, what manners and habits uh, do you think might be like extra important for people to be mindful of during this time when, you know, you, you just can't get out that much and you don't have eight hours or 10 hours a day away from each other? Sure. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I would just start off by saying I myself also have a podcast. Uh, it's uh, called What Manners Most. And it's my, I just uh, a couple of months ago finished my first season. We're working on season two right now. When my producer and I were putting the pieces together for the first season, I had all of these terrific episodes in the can because it was my goal to have a full season populated before I announced that there was a podcast out there. Well, mm -hmm. some of the episodes, just to give you a sense that I had ready on the go, one was on air travel etiquette from the standpoint of a flight attendant. And, you know, this interview was done in January, so they, we didn't speak at all about COVID. Nobody really, you know, I mean, some yeah. people knew, but I, it wasn't even a, a blip on most people's radar. Right. Um, I did another one with a Broadway star, an opera singer on the etiquette that a performer wishes that the audiences would know from the perspective uh -huh. of a performer, which mm -hmm. is a fascinating conversation. Mm. But uh, as I said, I, you know, I live in New York. We don't know when Broadway will even be back, let alone... Yeah to be putting that episode out there in March. So as a consequence, we threw the baby out with the bathwater and started from scratch and made the podcast all about pandemic etiquette. And mm. in the time since, I launched a syndicated national column on questions of COVID etiquette. And, um, and of course, I've been doing a lot of media with all these questions. And it's been, or it's been so fascinating for me. And I think this is, it's a perfect example of the way etiquette can truly evolve and adapt to situations. So there's, again, this perception that, you know, etiquette is something that your great, 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 great grandma, you know, was important to her. And she's got 17 sets of silverware, depending on what the occasion is. And, and you know, and that's etiquette. And yet true etiquette is, is malleable. And it's malleable and it, and it needs to exist because it gives people a roadmap. It gives people a playbook for how to, and to, how to act when they're in an unfamiliar situation, whatever that situation might be. So maybe you're 14 years old and you're going to your first wedding mm -hmm. and you don't know, well, what side am I supposed to sit on if I'm in a church or what am I supposed to wear? So there's, there's etiquette for those things so that no one feels silly or that they did the wrong thing or did something different from everyone else. And I think now in this, the time of this pandemic, we are all of us, you know, none of us were alive going through the 1918, 1919 pandemic. So we're all dealing with something that's completely radically different. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, I, the concept that we're wearing masks and that we're distancing and all, all of these things are brand new to us. So it's been a fascinating period for me. Yeah. And when it comes to peace in the home, which you're asking about, I think it's vital. That's where it starts. My gosh, if we can't be civilized to the members of our own household, how can we possibly be expected to be at our best selves in school when we're Zooming and work calls when we're, when we're Microsoft Teamsing? It's, it's vital. So mm -hmm. yes, manners and consideration, very, you're all underfoot perhaps. And that's, you know, that's evolving a little bit and kids are slowly kind of going back to school and hybrid models and some offices are opening up. So it's not mm -hmm. where we were several months ago, but still you have many households where you've got a lot of, or in New York where I am, 
you might have a one or two bedroom apartment and you've got three or four mm. household members all there underfoot all the time. So yes, patience yeah. and consideration. Yeah. Yeah. I, wow. That just like gave me anxiety. <laughs> That's a lot under one roof for a long period of time. And certainly, you know, it would be probably very trying to keep yourself, um, you know, in that place of being thoughtful and composed and, you know, good natured all of the time. But I, I think, um, yeah, d doing your best though to even with your family members, because like you said, it all starts at home and um, just doing the simple things that you don't feel are really necessary to do it anymore, but simple pleases and thank yous and excuse me and can I get you something or how can I help? I mean, just the simplest things like that. That doesn't take any effort. That's just habits. And they're good habits and they mean so much to the person that is receiving, you know, those initiatives. And, and then you're demonstrating that for your kids. So let's talk about that for a minute. Um, teaching kids manners. Do you think that, a couple things. One, do you think that, not everybody, but generally, do you think that parents are slacking on teaching some basic general manners with kids? Um, I don't know. I've, my kids have been out of school now for a long time, so I'm not seeing that kind of, uh, I'm not familiar with that environment firsthand anymore. Um, and of course, the stuff that you see out on YouTube and social media usually just shows the worst of things and not the best. So you can get a warped view of things. But I wonder what your take is on that. And then I also wonder about, um, do you think that like kids, uh, young people, uh, their TV shows and the movies, do you think that influences an attitude of irreverence in kids? Because you see a lot of that kind of, you know, irreverent, snarky humor, even geared toward young kids, you know, in the movies and their cartoons and TV shows. And I'm just wondering your thoughts on that. How much of an influence is that on, on their, you know, ability to be just respectful and use some manners? Yes. I think there's no question that children grow up a lot faster today than they ever did before. They're exposed to things. I mean, whether it's sex education or uh, music lyrics, they are seeing things, yeah. they are hearing things um, that were simply not accessible to them before. So they're growing up a lot faster. I think a lot of the, the role models in mass media can, and in, and in politics, unfortunately, can uh, provide an example that shows that it's okay to talk a certain way or it's okay to be a bully or it's okay to be selfish. And so frankly, it really is vital now more so than ever for parents to provide that proper foundation. And, and I'm not talking about having your children, you know, leave it to beaver style coming to the dinner table at five fifteen with their bow ties perfectly right. straight and uh, you know, yes, ma'am. And yes, sir. Kind of thing. Again, I don't know that it existed in some quarters, but I don't think it really reflected the reality of, of Americana mm -hmm. in, in the 1950s. Well, yeah. It's easy to think that way when you watch these shows. Uh, so, But I do think that there is a vital role that the parents play that has been abdicated somewhat by the fact that most American households who have children by necessity or by choice are double-income households where mm -hmm. both parents are working and so the kids are probably more influenced by their friends who they're seeing either on social media when they get home from school or uh, on sports teams and who they're interacting with there on buses and so on. And their interactions with their parents are fairly minimal, again, talking pre-pandemic times. Mm -hmm. One of the really nice things I think about this pandemic, and I'm constantly on the lookout for silver linings as I know you are, is that parents and families have really had a chance to free from the distractions of, uh, you know, mom or dad going off to work, freed from the distractions of, okay, well, I got to pick this one up from lacrosse at two and this one up from football at four and this one up from band practice at six. And, uh, you know, we had a long, long, long season. And for some, it's still continuing where those things weren't happening and everybody was underfoot and families were eating together, families were cooking together, families were clearing the table together. So for all of the things that children today have been deprived of, graduations and proms, and, and that's really sad for the, you know, the teenagers and the young people of, of the world, frankly, mm -hmm. I think 
this really is a, a parents have a, a wonderful, unique opportunity to use this time to instill some of those good manners. Because if somebody gets to the age of 30 and they were not exposed to any of this, chances are they're going to be pretty set in their ways. But it's those, those children who at age six, like me, who were writing their thank you notes to their Aunt Muriel and, and to my parents and whomever else, uh, yeah. who still do it to this day. Or at least if they don't always do it, they know that they should be doing it. So, uh, so I think it's, yes, I think children today uh, do need to um, embrace this opportunity to learn from their parents and the parents need to, uh, to take on that leadership role. Mm -hmm. I think a big part of the challenge, in addition to the double uh, income and the, the two-parent working scenario, is that I think starting around the 1960s, those parents, the, uh, you know, the baby boomers, they didn't want to be thought of as sir or ma'am or, you know, uh, Uncle John or, you know, no, just call me John. And so there was, there was kind of a melting away of, you know, don't call me grandma. You know, I'm not a grandma. I'm, you know, I'm doing spin classes. How dare you call me grandma, you know, grandson. Right. Um, and right. I think it's some of the, that formality and some of that, that distinction, that familiar distinction has melted away can we blame kids for thinking that they can talk to their elders in the same exact way that they talk to their friends? Or even, you know, I think of the friends of my parents when I was growing up, I would not in a million years ever call them by their first name. It wouldn't even, mm -hmm. I knew what their first names were because I would hear my parents say those first names, but yeah. I wouldn't use their first names. Now, what do you do if you're a parent who's raising your child to call an adult Mr. So-and-so or Mrs. So-and-so or Miss So-and-so or Ms. So-and-so? And that Ms. So-and-so says, you know, call me Susie to the child. Now the right. child really got a little bit of a dilemma. So yeah. I, think, yeah. I think all of these are factors in why children uh, are perhaps not as mannerly sometimes as we would like them to be and why mm -hmm. parents are not always putting in the time or the thought into it that the, perhaps they should. Right. Yeah, good points. Um, and, and also this is such a great opportunity right now. I mean, for all of the, you know, the terrible circumstances around the situation, there are some windows of opportunity for people. And that is one of them. If you have kids that are home with you and now you're spending 24 seven together, this is your time, right? To sit down and go, you know what, we're going to we're going to uh, implement some new habits here. Yes. What a great opportunity. I mean, you've got nothing but time and you've got a captive audience, right? Yes, it's so true. And I would say for any of your listeners or viewers who are tuning in thinking, well, gosh, doesn't that just sound nice, Lori and Thomas? You know, you, you, know, you come to my house sometime and see what I'm dealing with. I will tell you, and I've actually, even though table manners and table settings are not really my focus, I'm very often asked and I'm brought in by parents who would say, could you do an etiquette dinner with my family, with my children? And children love learning new skills, especially when they can prove to their peers and to their elders that they've learned something that, that other people don't necessarily know. It's very empowering. So yes. they may not always want to hear it from mom and dad, right. but if there's some role model in their lives that, that you can employ, not employ, employ, but that you can uh, task to help out with the teaching of some of those manners. If they're simply not going to listen to mom or dad, you might be surprised at how um, open to the idea that they are. Yeah. I've, um, I have uh, read a few stories um, on that same note before um, where some uh, a family had decided to help their kids while they're stuck home in, in the COVID crisis, um, learn how to, um, how, how being a guest and running a restaurant could work. So they like traded roles, which was so cool so that the kids were like the maitre d' and the waiter, you know, and, and, you know, serving the parents and then, you know, switching it around. And so what a fun opportunity. And I know that you're absolutely right. Um, bringing your kids into the fold and helping them be rather than like, we're going to teach you. It's more like, hey, we're all going to do this fun project together and we're going to learn together and uh, bringing them into it so that they are part of it and they're learning and then they're contributing. That makes them feel awesome. And it's, and it's fun. Yes. It's really fun. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Yeah. And by the way, before I forget, I will have you know, Mr. Manners, that I sent all of my guests a handwritten thank you note. And I don't want you to think when you get one from me that it's just because we had this conversation. <laughs> you can ask any of my past guests. They've all received one. So just saying. A plus to you. I, I applaud you. And yes, I, I, I know that you would not just be doing it for appearances. I, I believe that it's who you are. It, 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 it radiates. <laughs> Thank you. Theory. I just like I had to throw that out there just so you didn't think, uh-huh. <laughs> All right. So, hey, do you uh, have a going rogue story for me? It's so apropos that you bring that up in this moment because I was just thinking that this is perhaps the perfect segue for my going rogue moment. Uh, awesome. So Thank you for teeing me up. And I love, I, love the, I love the phraseology around that. I think it's a great, really learning opportunity and, and the idea yeah. of being a rogue, uh, you right. know, kind of a little, little rough and tumble doing something out of the ordinary. So yeah. I was fresh out of college and I went on a job interview for a magazine position that I was probably underqualified for, but as a brash, I was 20. As a brash 20-year-old, I really felt very... Uh, certain about my abilities to take it on and went in for this interview uh, with a publisher, a European publisher who was doing interviews in New York. And I thought the interview had gone particularly well, uh, although there was one question that really tripped me up in this interview. And the question was whether I thought of myself as a go-getter. And I don't know why, I just, I didn't expect it. I didn't see it coming. And I felt in retrospect that my response was a little bit weak for someone who truly was a go-getter, mm -hmm. you would have embraced it fully and not hesitated a moment. And I kind of, I felt like I waffled a little bit in my reply. So I had just read a book. I, I uh, read, read this book that said, if you, whether you get a job or not, always send a thank you note. So there's, there's their nice segue. Um, but that if you don't get the job, that you should tell the individual that you think they made a mistake. And, you know, again, for a brash 20-year-old, I thought, uh, wow, that really, that seems gutsy to, to tell, you know, this person who's, you know, more than twice my age that I think he made a mistake. And so as it turned out, I didn't, I didn't get the job. And he had, he did send me a very nice note, you know, thank you for applying. And we were very impressed with you, but we've decided to go a different direction. So I wrote right back and I said, I think you've made a mistake and here's why. And I went through a list of all the reasons why I thought I could ace this job and I could do a wonderful, wonderful job based on the vision that he had outlined for this launch magazine that he was creating. And my final line was, of this letter which seared in my mind, I said, during our interview, you asked whether I consider myself a go-getter. I think you have your answer. And then I signed it and I licked the envelope, put a stamp on it, stuck it in the mail. Two weeks later, he wound up calling me and I'll never forget his line. He said, are you, he was European. So he said, are you still in play? And I said, wow. yes, I am still in play. So I went back in for interview number two and he wound up hiring me. He had hired someone else. It hadn't worked out so well. He was having second thoughts. He got my letter and, mm. uh, and he wound up. And so now years later, I never knew who that person was. Years later, I wound up meeting the person who had actually gotten the position. Really? <laughs> knew all about who I was, um, but I had no idea who she was. And so we had a good conversation. It was long after I'd left that particular publication, uh, but we kind of compared notes. But yeah. that was my rogue moment, saying that I thought that this particular um, magazine publisher had made a big mistake by not hiring. Wow, that's a good one because that... Yeah, I, I, that would take, I think, some real trust and some nerve to do that. Like you said, I mean, somebody that's, you know, maybe a couple decades older and obviously they're like running the show, you're trying to get a job from them and to say, mm, I think you've made a mistake. That takes some nerve. Yes. I, you know, I guess at the time, and this really was the point that I wish I could remember the name of the book that had this advice, but at that mm. point, you haven't gotten the position already. You've, you've lost it. Yeah. So. What do you have to lose, right? All they can do is say, well, boy, that person's uh, got a nice opinion of themselves. But apart from that, uh, nothing right. ventured, nothing gained. 
Yeah. And I think that's such a good point. And that's one of the things I love about people sharing their going rogue stories, because there's always, there's always that thing. Yeah. But if I don't, you know, what's the worst can happen or that can happen, or what do I have to lose? Um, and when you really ask yourself those questions um, and you can feel comfortable with your answer, it makes it a lot easier for you to, to take that risk and do what maybe for the individual is make a rogue move and, and, you know, go rogue by, by their own definition. So yes. it's always, it's always fun to hear everybody's stories and the value that comes of it. Thank you for sharing that. It's really Thank you for asking. I haven't, I haven't talked about it in a while, so it's nice to reflect on it. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good one. If you think of the name of that book, I'm super curious, please send sure. it to me. I will. I will. <sighs> Uh, well, you know what? I, um, I think that we have shared some amazing uh, information today. I love everything that you talked about. I think that it's super important for people to take, take this information very seriously. And, you know, not only for your, your own relationships with the people around you, but um, just I think it makes, somehow it just makes you feel good about yourself when you're being a thoughtful, kind person that demonstrates some just fundamental manners. It matters. Manners matter, right? They do. They do. And that's, that's, that's the name of my podcast. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah. You know, when I, when I encounter someone who, who's, and I do hear this a lot, you know, oh, why, why send a thank you? No. Why is it? And I, and I will typically say, you can look at this from strictly a self-preservation, selfish perspective. And the fact is people who have good manners, people who are thoughtful and considerate, they're the ones who get put on the flight when the flight was full and they have one seat left. They are the ones who grandma remembers the next year because she's got your thank you note magnetized to her refrigerator <laughs> as opposed to your cousin who maybe sent a text, you know, in, in text shorthand, thanks granny. Uh, and right. that was the extent of it. So <laughs> even, even if you are doing it, and I hope you're not, not you, but anyone is doing uh, good etiquette, performing good etiquette simply for selfish reasons, there, there's a, a definitely uh, a benefit mm -hmm. to being mm -hmm. mannerly. Hopefully it just becomes a part of who you are and that's not the reason you're doing it, but you're going to get the job. You're going to get the promotion. You're going to get the relationship. You're going to get along. People are going to like you and you're going to like them more the more you can grease the wheels of those social interactions through good etiquette and manners. Yeah, I agree. And you know what? It just makes people feel good. And I just don't, there's just not a better feeling than when something you've said or done, even the smallest thing lights somebody else up and it makes them feel good. That's like the best feeling in the world. So it's almost even a self-serving thing. Absolutely. I totally agree. I totally agree. Yeah. So Mr. Manners, um, why don't you tell everyone where they can find out more about you and your services and your podcast? Thank you. Thank you for that opportunity. So, so yes, the podcast, as I mentioned, we're just about to go into season two. It's available in all the wonderful places where you might find your podcast, Spotify, our radio, Apple podcasts, and so on, uh, Google podcasts. And it is called what manners most. And in our season one, uh, which is which is up there for for listening. We talked with everyone from relationship experts to travel experts to uh, people in the world of sports about what these sea changes in our lives over the last eight months have meant to the way we interact with one another and how we can do so more considerately. So that's the podcast, and and I'd love to count your listeners as as my listeners as well. And yes. I have to have you on my show as we as we kick off season two. Well, I would uh, so be honored. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm not, I'm not doing a video as you do here. I think it's, mm -hmm. it's a wonderful addition. It's something I've been considering, but mm -hmm. um, still just tweaking the, the mix of the show before we, we take that next platform step. So that's the podcast. Yeah. And then on social media, I'm Mr. Manners on Twitter and Instagram. And that's Mr. Spelled out, M-I-S-T-E-R. And the website is Mr. Also spelled out hyphen manners.com. And that's where you can find out uh, information on all of the workshops that I offer. So for anyone who works in human resources or sales, uh, you know, people tend to hear Mr. Manners and they think, oh, well, that's nice. Again, he's, he's teaching people how to, how to eat soup properly. Um, the reality is I do programs on dealing with difficult people and customer service. And now for this era that we're living through, I'm doing programming that I never envisioned doing, but I, I feel is vital. So things like being your best virtual self or for sales teams, 
How do you connect with your customers in an age where you can't call on them in the traditional way of going out for a steak dinner somewhere? Now you're all distancing and nobody's getting on an airplane. So how do you still connect with your customers? How do you connect with your team uh, in a way that's meaningful and relevant in this new age, which seems like it will be with us for the foreseeable. So those are yeah. all, all ways that people can engage with me. And, uh, and I look forward to hearing from, and I also love getting questions. So if any of your listeners have questions, something that's going on in their household or their office, I love hearing those as well. Perfect. That's awesome. And we will, of course, include uh, your contact info in the, uh, in the show notes so people will be able to, to find that. Um, you know what? I think that we have given everyone a lot of really great shift to think about today. And so with that, I am going to let you go. And again, thank you so much for spending all this time with us today. I really, really appreciate it. And uh, thank you to all of you listeners and viewers for hanging out with me and Thomas today. Uh, If you would like some guidance, um, shifting your mindset or up-leveling your health, getting unstuck, uh, just head on over to lauriebischoff.com and you can find out what private coaching with me is all about. If you find value in everything that you hear on We're Talking Shift, please do us a solid and give us a rating and a review. Leave some comments because we really like to hear what you think about the show. Tell us your greatest takeaway and make sure that you share all of this great shift with your friends. Don't keep it all to yourselves. Until next week, stay feisty, my friends. Mind your manners and go make some epic shift happen in your lives. That means you too, Gary Vee.